So on this journey of going through the fruit of the Spirit, we are up to self-control. And if you're keeping score on that, that's, that's number nine. That we have been for nine weeks now going through this series that is about the fruit of the Spirit. It, it comes from that passage that comes out of Galatians 5, the passage where Paul writes this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So we've been going through those one by one, and today we're up to that last one, self-control. And, and I'm, I'm struck, by, struck by a couple things as we get to this. First of all, I, I'm going to do one more message on this next week, a message that I'm entitling Fruit Salad, that will sort of incorporate all of this together and sort of bring a summary to that. Now, but, but before, you, before you go too far and think, wait a minute, you could have given this to us in one sermon and I sat through nine? And Well, it's important that we spend some time and reflection on each of these things in order for that summary to come together and make sense. So that, that will bring it all together. The other thing I'm struck by, by that passage from Galatians, here, I'll put that one back up again, is that, that the fruit is singular. It's one. It's not that there are nine fruits here. There, there's one fruit. And it's made up of all these nine things together. And the Apostle Paul, as he so often does, includes lists in his writing that are not meant to be comprehensive. It's not that these nine are the only nine. The, these are just a sampling, right? This just brings us to a place of understanding the kind of quality that comes from spiritual fruit. So we're going to wrap that one up by thinking today about self-control, and then next week, how all of that ties together. Self-control. This one maybe is one that, that takes a little bit of work for us to pull together as a spiritual fruit as something that we bear for the benefit of others and to understand how that works. So, first of all, I'm going to read a few verses that come from Romans 12. Some familiar verses, if you are familiar with Romans and what Paul writes in Romans, but then we'll talk about how that comes together with self-control. Romans 12, the first eight verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, for these mem and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. 
If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Self-control. We think about what self-control means. And maybe we all have different ways of thinking about this or how it works. I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that shows up in my house as self-control, as, as I put that together, that, that I have this habit that um, after dinner time, and, and on a normal night when things all go by schedule, dinner time at my house is about 6 o'clock in the evening. So, you know, 6.30-ish, it's wrapping up, and, and I'll have a little bit of dessert after dinner. And then I will say out loud, no calories after dinner. I say that out loud because I, I'm almost talking to myself there. I need the reminder of, you know what? I've had enough to eat today. And if I don't make the intentional choice to restrain myself I might sit down with the newspaper and a bag of chips and just keep going and keep snacking and just keep snacking and snacking and snacking. So so I say out loud, and my children, my family would tell you this because after dinner it happens, I pull away from the table and I say, that's it, no more calories, I'm done. Because I need to know where that boundary is. If you were to look up self-control and and try to define that, uh, the dictionary would tell you that self-control is intentional restraint. Intentional restraint. I've given a few more words to it here. That self-control, it's those habits or patterns that we set up to keep boundaries around our impulses, appetites, and desires. Right? Boundaries that we put around, patterns, habits we set up. And, and I gave one example, which one that, uh, that I know I need to set up some self-control around is, you know what, i got to watch the snacking. So I've, I've got some boundaries around that. That doesn't mean I never snack, but there are some boundaries around that, that I set it. And, and it shows up in other ways too. <clears throat> Maybe for some of us it's about screen time, if you're familiar with that term. Right, the number of hours a day I spend in front of a television or on a smartphone or a computer or a tablet or somehow with a screen in my face. Some, some restraint, some boundaries around that. Or maybe it's about things like alcohol consumption or just sitting around on the sofa or the number of hours I spend at work, working instead of getting rest that my body needs. You see, in some of these things, it's not like we're talking about bad things. In fact, some of these may, in fact, be good things, but it's knowing the limit of when even a good thing may be too much. So it's having some boundaries around that so that it's not just impulses and desires that are controlling everything we do, but with self-control, we recognize that there are some patterns that we have that that are healthier for us as people. 
I think we all interact with self-control in some way then. We all have examples in our lives where we have taken on measures of self-control, where we have all recognized there's something in the world around me, in my world around me, that needs a little bit of boundary and structure. And I will self-control so that I'm living in a healthier way around that. Perhaps that's how we think of self-control. But this leaves us in a bit of a spot here this morning. How is it then that self-control becomes a spiritual fruit? So if you've been with us through this series, perhaps you've been noticing that each week as we've been looking at these different topics of what spiritual fruit looks like, there always seems to be this point in which a spiritual fruit is something that we bear for the benefit of others. This one leaves us with a bit of a question. How does my self-control bear fruit for the benefit of others? Because often... Often, right, when we think about self-control, it's kind of a me thing. It's about me making my life better or healthier in some way. But it takes a little bit more for us to think about self-control as a spiritual fruit that God gives to us for the benefit of others. I want to bring that idea into this passage that we read today. Romans 12. Uh, if, if you're a fan of the book of Romans, then this is one of those passages that probably jumps to close to the top of the list of, I love that passage in Romans. In particular, verses 1 and 2 that we read. I hear that quoted often, or that's the kind of thing that maybe you see, uh, you know, on printed on coffee cups or decorative plaques or plates or things like that. Those first two verses. To make sense of this one, though, I want us to see something of a little bit of English grammar, particularly about plurals and singulars, because that will help make sense of what this passage means, to recognize singulars and plurals. I'm going to cram it all on one screen here. So hopefully you can see that or read that. But, but I've, I've marked some things out. This is the first two verses of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And I've marked out what's plural and what's singular because that makes a striking difference. Now, here's the reason I'm doing that because think about this. If you have read this passage before, how often isn't it true that we read this passage and we think, me, I, Right? that we think of this as something that is individual for each one of us. But Paul writes this to a collective group, to an audience that is gathered and assembled. We don't catch that very well in our English language. I've noted this before because it shows up in other passages as well, that that the English second-person pronoun you has no distinction between singular and plural in our language unless, as I've noted, you're from Texas or the south side of Chicago. Where in Texas it's y'all or all y'all, or in Chicago it's use or use guys. Uh, They distinguish between you one person or you a bunch of people. 
This passage is full of the plural. It's the you a bunch of people. It's all of you together. So look at this. Look at how this comes together then. Not as speaking to an individual, but to speaking to a collective group. But I've highlighted two words in particular, the two words in this passage that in fact are singular. One. And that's important to note. So look at how this plays out so that we understand where Paul is drawing our attention in this, right? He says, Therefore, I urge you, all of you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I I intentionally pluraled that because in your English Bible it says mercy, but in the Greek this is plural as well. God's many mercies to offer your bodies, all of us, plural, together as, now here's the first singular, one living sacrifice. Together, one sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Not mine or you or you. It's ours together. This is our true and proper worship. I, I added some yous in the next verse here because in the English imperative command, the you is always implied. Right? If I tell one of my kids, brush your teeth and go to bed, they know I'm, I mean you brush your teeth and go to bed. So I, I added this, right? You do not conform to the pattern of this world, and that's plural, not individual, but all of you together do not conform to the pattern of this world. But all of you together be transformed by the renewing of your, there's the second singular in this, one mind, that you all together are being transformed to be renewed in one mind. Then you, all of you together, will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Those things make this passage look different. Uh, It pulls some meaning out of this that maybe we miss or have missed in the many years that maybe we've seen this or heard it or quoted it or said this is one of my favorites from Romans. But Paul is addressing something rather specific and rather particular in this passage by his intentional use of what's plural, all of us together, and the two things that he pulls out and highlights as singular. This is the one thing that comes through this. So in this passage, even though there is collective instruction for all of God's people, collective instruction for, this is a message for all of you, and I don't mean all of you as gathered individuals. I mean a togetherness about that. There is a togetherness in the offering of our bodies as a living sacrifice. There is a togetherness in not conforming to the pattern of this world. There is a togetherness in being transformed by the renewing of our one mind. That Paul is addressing us as a group in that. A group effort. A group activity. But those things that he pulls out as singular, those are meant to stand apart as we read those verses. Those are meant to catch our attention in a different way. That I want all of you, all of us together, 
to be one living sacrifice. I don't think we should get too hung up on the whole, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? And what does that look like to offer our bodies as that? This is simply Paul's way of making a very stark contrast to the Old Testament system. The Old Testament system of sacrifices in which they were the dead bodies of slain animals. And and Paul is saying, you know what, we're past that. That is not what we do now. We don't offer as sacrifices the dead bodies of slain animals. Our sacrifice is a living sacrifice that we are the ones who offer ourselves to God. But it is still here one sacrifice. It comes as one sacrifice before God. As we think about what that means then, to offer ourselves as one sacrifice. We may get caught up in in those moments of thinking of all all the little individual things we do, right? I offer myself as this living sacrifice because I offer this and offer that and do this and do that. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about all the things that you and you and you and you do. He's talking about what we do, the collective that we offer ourselves as that one living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. With our bodies, the way we live, what we do, how we act, right? How it is we go about being the people that God has created us to be day after day after day, that is an offering of who we are. And it's not the individual, but it's collective, all of us together are a part of that in how we live and in what we do. But before we get stuck on it just being about action and going through motion, Paul brings us back to the inner part of that with the other singular. We do that by being transformed with the renewing of our mind, our one mind together. That we are people who have been changed. Changed by the power of Christ. And are being renewed. It's an ongoing process. I think that's why renew here it has that I-N-G ending, right? It's renewing. It's still happening. It's ongoing. It's a process that never completes until we see God face to face and he makes all things new again at the recreation, when Christ returns. Until that time, we are always being renewed and renewing in the image of Christ. And we do that together as one mind as well. To do that then, to think about what it means for us to be people who live in ways that It's one sacrifice to God. To do that in ways where we are being renewed in one mind together. We struggle with that. One mind. What it means for us to be one mind together. You see, because it it does not mean that we're all the same. 
It does not mean necessarily that we even all agree or all have the same opinions about everything. We're not clones of each other in that way. We each still have our own diverse parts of how we come together to form the body of Christ all together. And that's why continuing on from verse 2 is so important. That's why the verses that I kept reading in verses 3 through 8 make so much sense in what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. That it's not an individual thing, but even in the collective, even in the, in the togetherness, the we of all of this, there is diversity. There is a place where we each have our own part in how God has gifted us to be a piece of this together family, all as one in one mind. How that comes together. The renewing of your one mind. This is true and proper worship, Paul says. Uh, If you have the older NIV version of the Bible, it it says this is your spiritual act of worship. I'm glad that the NIV translators have updated that because there is no mention in this passage of anything having to do with the spirit. That would be the Greek word pneuma. It doesn't appear in this passage. I like how the new NIV has rendered that instead. This is your true and proper worship. It's from the Greek word logikos. It's where we get the English word logic or logical. It is something that tells us of the ways that we work in our inner mind. That logical way where we might think of that as being properly informed or correctly understood or carefully thought out. That this way we go about living together as one body in Christ, that we do this in a way that offers worship to God just by living as God's people. But we also do that in a way that is properly informed, in a way that is correctly understood, in a way that is carefully thought out. That the worship that we bring to God and who we are and how we live together is it's not random. It's not haphazard. It's not accidental of whatever happens, happens. But we have some intentionality behind it. We've created ways for the ways that we live as God's people to intentionally be worship before him. We've placed, in other words, some boundaries, some structure, places where there may be some intentional restraint in certain directions. Or, to bring it back to our subject for today, it has a certain measure of self-control, a measure of recognizing there are certain boundaries and patterns in who we are and how we live that create for us a healthier way to be. And when we live in those ways, when we act upon that and live according to those structures and boundaries, we exercise then a measure of self-control. But in these words that Paul is putting to us in Romans 12, that's not individual, that's together. That's collective. That's all of us. 
doing that, embracing this measure of a spiritual self-control in how we live to offer ourselves as one living sacrifice to God together. And how we are being transformed by the renewing of our one mind together in Christ. It takes some self-control to do that. It takes that spiritual fruit of self-control that we bear to make that happen. Let me take this one a little step further for us because self-control isn't something that's random either. Self-control comes by, I'm going to give it another word, discernment. That self-control requires discernment. Think of what I mean by that. All right, let's think about my my particular activity of saying, I'm not going to keep snacking after dinner, right? That I have a measure of self-control that I'm just not even going to go to the chip cupboard after dinner. That took some discernment to figure that out. I had to first recognize and discern that, you know what? If I want to have at least some measure of physical health to my body, there's many things I, okay, should do, Uh, But of the things that I choose to do on that, I've discerned. I've discerned one of the things that I can do so that my body is healthier is I'm just not going to touch snacks after dinner. I had to discern that first and then put it into action. The discernment comes and then the act of self-control, which is a product of that discernment of first figuring out what is it that I need to do in order to be self-controlled. Self-control requires discernment. Discernment is something that happens in our minds, that we reflect upon and decide and come to a knowledge of what's good and healthy and right. But, In this passage in particular, Paul is also telling us that discernment requires something else. Discernment requires God's covenant community. That we don't do this alone. That you and I can never fully engage that proper act of discernment so that we can be self-controlled unless we are doing that discernment together with God's people. Look at the ways that Paul points to that in this passage. In verse 5, he says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. That we do this together as one body, and we say, you know what? I'm a part of this community. I belong to this community And I will give to be a part of this community. Together, we do that. But then, after verse 5, Paul goes on to note the ways in which this doesn't mean we're all clones. We're not robots all the same, but we each have a place within that. Look at all the different gifts that Paul mentions in verses 6 through 8. Grace given to each of us. Prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, Leading, showing mercy, 
all those examples of different gifts. And in that one, Paul is talking there a little bit more singularly, right? That in that case, when he mentions all the breakout of all those different gifts and talents and abilities that are given to the people in the church, he's talking about, you know what, this, this collective together we that he's been mentioning in verses 1 and 2, there's pieces to that which all have their own distinct flavor, their own color, their own way of being expressed. But they're all woven together into one that we come together then as one mind and one living sacrifice that we are one offering to God in that way. And that requires God's covenant community. So when we face issues of what does it mean for me to be a person of faith? What does it mean for me to use the gifts that God has given to me? What does it mean for me to be a Christian and live in this world? And we have those questions. We wrestle with those questions together. And based on the giftedness and based on the talents and the abilities and what God has given each of you to do, you know what? The end result of what that looks like for each one of you may be a little bit different because we each have different abilities and gifts that we bring. But we discern that together. We go through the process of figuring out what it means for us to be people of God together, even if our own expressions of that look a little different in line with how we are each gifted differently and have different talents about that. Paul is giving us here in this passage a beautiful picture of what it means for us to be the body of Christ and express that with all of the self-control that we bring to that that comes by discernment we do together. Or to put it in Paul's poetic language of Romans 12, that living sacrifice that we are together as we are being transformed by the renewing of our one mind together in Christ. And that this then becomes our act of worship in who we are. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and, and the way that you reveal in your word how we are your church. God, we, are, we confess that we're sorry for the times when we have read a passage like this and, and we've made it just an individual thing. It's all about me. It's all about what I do. God, may we see again the ways that this is about us and what we do. Thank you for diversity of gifts and talents in this body. Thank you for the way that you have knit us all together as one. And Lord, may we always look to you and acknowledge that we need you and your power alone that we may remain together as one, walking within your will. That is our prayer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.